Martial Arts World Radio is the official radio show and podcast of The Factory Martial Arts Boxing and Fitness at 450 Matheson Boulevard East, Unit 44, Mississauga, Ontario. Check us out at www.factorygrindgym.com. Hi, I'm Bob Wall, a World Full Contact Karate Champion, and I'm the co-star of End of the Dragon. You're listening to Martial Arts World Radio with Joseph Clark. Welcome to Martial Arts World Radio. I'm your host, Joseph Clark. Each episode, we feature many of the best fighters in the world, from the UFC, Bellator, the Olympics, as well as martial arts legends, pioneers, and cinema stars as we share best practices and philosophies, using martial arts as a metaphor for life's challenges, for training, for personal growth, and for competing. Over the next hour, I will feature my interviews with UFC middleweight division fighter and winner of the Ultimate Fighter Nations Canada vs. Australia, Elias the Spartan Theodoru, and 11-time world kickboxing champion and martial arts cinema star Don the Dragon Wilson. Welcome to our latest FM syndication network affiliate, CKLU 96.7 FM. A further welcome to our latest sponsor, Kayani Independent Consultant Daniel Jarej. You can click on his advertisement at the show website at mawradio.com. If you go to my show website, go to the bottom of the page and look for the Kayani banner. If you have a product or brand which you wish to advertise and promote to our 1 million plus weekly global listeners, reach out to me at producer at mawradio.com. This week's inspirational quote is from UFC fighter Frank Murr and goes as follows. You know what the true definition of hell is? It's when you die, you get to meet the person you could have been. Former UFC heavyweight champion, Frank Murr. Today's interviews are brought to you by Kayani Independent Distributor, Daniel Jarege. Kayani is a leading provider of all-natural health and wellness products that provide athletes with faster post-training recovery and energy. Endorsed by professional fighters and celebrity martial artists Josh Tyler, boxer Manny Pacquiao, and even celebrity Jackie Chan. Reach out to Daniel for more info at Australia at gmail.com or Skype Daniel at the exact same address on Skype, Kayani, K-Y-A-N-I, Health Australia at gmail.com. This is UFC fighter Jason Sago. You are now listening to Martial Arts World Radio with Joseph Clark. UFC middleweight fighter Elias the Spartan Theodoru is known for his extreme cardio training and strategic approach to fighting. He has a Muay Thai kickboxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu background. Elias, why the Spartan? Sounds like a great nickname for a fighter. Well, my first coach, um, thank you, uh, my first coach, um, he basically, he was a Greek descent, descent, sorry, Greek descent as well, and right in the beginning when we were starting, uh, Everyone knew, obviously, a lot more than I did. So just my relentlessness and my unwillingness to quit, she just called me the Spartans that I had it in me. And uh, it stuck, and hey, the shoe fits. What kind of reactions do you get from people about your career? Well, at first, everyone, even funny story, um, many of my first opponents used to just call me a pretty boy. So um, they used to just look at the, I guess, the book cover that is myself. Ironic that I have actually done a few book covers. Uh, but with that being said, um, they used to judge me and expect they would walk through me, and it didn't happen. <laughs> and you've done some modeling and some stunt work. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, like uh, like I just alluded to, I've done, I, I, I always get confused. I've done 10 romance novels of the covers form. Um, I think six or seven of them were Harlequin, and then uh, the last three two to three or whatever, or another brand or publisher. And then I've done many different account, many different, uh, just magazines, um, uh, catalogs, different, honestly, all around. I can't even list what I've done. And then you throw in the stunt work, the TV, a movie, and then, uh, yeah, just a game show. Actually, I won a game show called uh, Match Game on Comedy Network, so I uh, still undefeated in that. <laughs> 
Now, many, uh, I shouldn't say many, a few months ago, I had an interview with uh, an old colleague of mine whose name was Jalal Merhi. And Jalal's a producer and a former martial arts star. He did a lot of television or a lot of film and television. Uh, most of his martial art films were back when I was your age, which I don't want to share how long back that was, how far back that was. <laughs> but uh, he's worked with Billy Blanks, and he worked a lot with oh, cool. Bolo Young, who, of course, Bolo Young appeared with Jean-Claude Van Damme in Bloodsport, yep. and he, he appeared with Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. And yes. interestingly, during the interview with Jalal, one of the things he alluded to is he said, I'm a martial artist, but I'm not a fighter. I like the art of martial art, but he said, I can't watch MMA. I can't watch guys beating each other to a pulp on TV, and that's just not for me. And I thought that was really interesting to hear a martial artist say that. And I'm sure in your, you know, in your travels, you must come across people who question, you know, the ethics of what you do. You seem like a very graceful guy. You seem like a gentleman fighter. How do you respond to people uh, when, when they react that way? Well, to each their own. I'm not really particularly a fan of curling, but I wouldn't stop anyone from doing it. I'd like to throw in the fact that we're two willing participants in competition. Uh, fighting is one of the most primal things, and even though it is a primal thing, it's chess, not checkers. Um, there's a lot of athletics, a lot of just sheer training and learning and whatnot, but it's all mental. Um, especially at this point, everyone's good at what they do and a lot of it has to do with that last little increments of just being the more mindful person so although i can respect his opinion and i understand where probably his background is more um like more of a martial arts of defense and remember there's both offense and defense so i would just say it's just two schools and maybe two generations apart you know, I enjoy watching MMA, and I'm, I'm a martial artist myself. I'm a big fan of MMA, and uh, I don't, you know, re- I obviously don't relate to people who say that they have a problem with it. However, I personally, uh, although I enjoy MMA, I find hockey fights really disturbing because in MMA, uh, the two fighters are professional athletes. Um, they're pursuing excellence. They've got a mutual respect for each other's abilities, and there's agreed-upon rules, and there's somebody there with them. Whereas in a hockey fight, they're just irate, and these people are just pretty well ready to kill each other if they didn't have pads on and somebody to stop them. So uh, I don't think MMA is disturbing in that respect, but I still find that I come across a lot of people who have a, an ethical problem with it. Yeah, and you know what? It, a lot of it has to do with the fact of it's a little bit still the unknown. Um, if you're not really familiar with it and you don't know the rules and the mechanics of it, then an outsider looking in might have that opinion of it. But if they get to know with any of the things that you mentioned, you could definitely see how mixed martial arts with two um, opponents that are ready and just at that level are set to do something. And, and your point with... Uh, with hockey, I, I would agree with. It's anything that kind of goes. There's set rules with mixed martial arts. Do you have any martial arts idols or uh, fighters that you idolized when you were making your way up the ranks? Uh, right off the bat, it was the personalities for me. Um, the TRTs, the Chuck Liddells, um, and then a couple in between. Um, my obviously favorite martial artist would have to be Anderson Silva, just, just with how dominant of a champion he was. He was, I actually had the, tra- the pleasure to train with him um, in, uh, in Brazil when I went down there with my coach, Sergio Cunha. And just the aura he had at that time, just being, he was honestly untouchable. And it was an amazing thing. And it, with that being said, he's obviously gone from God to human in the last two fights. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to be rooting for him in his next fight with Diaz. But it was just, there, there, there are many martial arts, martial artists that growing up, I just looked up to. And you throw in Tyson and just this ferociousness, and you, you throw Bruce Lee and his mysticalism. Like, there's just, there's just so many different people to bring up for many different reasons. Now, this interview is obviously not about Anderson Silva, but since you brought him up, there's a lot of fight philosophers who say that wins make you weaker, losses make you stronger. And it seemed to me that that his style was getting much more and more and more uh, showman and very cocky. Do you think that all those wins perhaps had gone to his head and he put his defenses down and, and needs to go back to basics? Well, um, there's a couple of things that kind of like 
what I've heard from different coaches that who've worked with them in this and that, that I wouldn't say necessarily the wins got them, but maybe a lot of the notoriety, a lot of the, the fame, a lot of the other stuff, the non-martial art aspect of it could have gotten away from it. But with that being said, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't use the word cocky because he was always doing that. That was, he, it was a mind game. He got you out of your element. He mind, um, <laughs> he messed with your mind to us just say the PG-13 <laughs> and it's all Jedi mind tricks that's that's what he was doing it's just the person that he fought um, uh, Chris Weidman didn't fall for it and actually just a side note one of my training partners Alex Ritchie who's actually fighting next, this weekend in Pennsylvania um, he he said to me one thing that was really an amazing thing where there's always someone you can't beat and unfortunately for Anderson Solo that's Chris Weidman now, on that note, how many fights, not to dwell on the negative, but how many fights can a professional fighter lose in the UFC before they lose their contract or get cut? You know what? Again, you got to remember it's not only how good you are, it's how many people want to come see you. So you can throw in the Ed Hardys who lost four in a row, and if it wasn't for uh, other health issues that actually came up, he had a heart murmur. Mm-hmm. So uh, that stops him from competing again. He still had a contract. And then you throw in someone like Randy Couture, who has almost as many losses as he does wins, but he's considered one of the greatest. So, again, although it is a sport, and that's what makes it really different than boxing, because boxing, you lose two, three fights, and you're out of the picture. You're a nobody. You're a bum, mm-hmm. right? But uh, with mixed martial arts, if you're exciting, if you're, if you're just ready to just compete, uh, there's always a spot for you. So it's kind of hard to work with that. Um, everyone's different. But uh, one thing I would say, um, the bigger you are, it's one of one of the things I've actually recently talked to with my coach. The larger the person is, the larger of a career they usually have. Because um, the smaller weight class rely on more speed. And as you age, speed goes. But the bigger heavyweights, they're actually of the largest medium or median age. It's because they, power is one of the last things to go. You can still hulk out at 35. And the career impact on your family and your social life, how has that changed since, uh, and I know I asked you earlier, and how's life changed for you since you won the Ultimate Fighter? But just as your career has grown, you've become more successful. What kind of impact has that taken on you socially in your circle of friends or to your family? Well, I think now, like I said before, um, they're just starting to really understand it, right? My parents actually... It's, it's really cute because like sometimes I'll stay with my parents because it's just where training is if I'm going to train in Hamilton I'm going to stay in Mississauga rather than Toronto that kind of thing but um, so I'll just hang out with my mom or whatever the case and she'll bring up some news of martial arts or you'll see that she heard and she's asking if uh, this person's in my weight class or like just different things it's just amazing to see how engaged they are into mixed martial arts and the UFC when you look back at your original goals um, and dreams for your career, was there a master plan, or are you just kind of making this up along the way? At first, uh, it was a little going with the flow. Like I said, me and my brother went to Calgary by ourselves and competed against the hometown guy. We were booed. We were part, almost halfway chased out of there. You know what I mean? And it was just a case of, let's see this. Let's go for it. Let's shoot for the shoot for the stars and land on the moon kind of thing. But now, like I said, I have a great team behind me, and we have a definite plan. Um, nothing happens by accident. So it's, been a lot, it's been three hard years of work since I've gone pro, and uh, the sky's the limit. Elias, how many amateur fights did you have before you started fighting professionally? I had uh, one, one tournament in uh, Hamilton. It was sports jiu-jitsu which is um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a hybrid of mixed martial arts. It, there's a lot less striking involved, and, it's, and there's certain time limits, like you only have an opponent down for 30 seconds. But uh, I, there was a national championship, and I went there, and I had, I think, four or five uh, matches, and I was dubbed the Canadian champion. And I just knew from then there, this is what I wanted to do. Is it surreal? I mean, you're talking about, for one thing, you, you're on the ultimate fighter. Uh, you're meeting... You know, Dana and, and, and all sorts of people who you've probably watched on television, you're training with Anderson Silva. Is it still surreal or has it sunk in? Uh, it's honestly still surreal. I'm really like, every once in a while, I just step back and just take, because if you throw in the fact that I've only been doing this for three years professionally uh, and I have 10 fights and I'm now 
um, ranked top 50 in my weight class in the world. And the people ahead of me and the people below me have 10 to 15 to 20 fights more than me. So just the idea of what I've been able to accomplish, what my team and I have been able to accomplish, it's a pretty amazing thing. But you can't just sit there and dwell on it. There's a lot of more hard work. I would like to say, like, what I talked about with one of my coaches is I've only just got my spot in the race. Prior to this is getting my spot. I had to earn my place in the UFC. So now the race starts. And looking back now, uh, like I, I get that. You, you've just started in the UFC and now you're really earning your place. But um, looking back on all the professional fights you've had to date, uh, what would you have done differently looking back now? Honestly, uh, there's not too much here and there. The one thing I thought about, it would have been nice to kind of fight internationally a little bit more, you know what I mean, go to Japan and just fight on a small card and just all the, the, the different stories that I've heard other people have. But honestly, I've been really lucky and I wouldn't trade a thing. I've, I've been so privileged and I'm so thankful for where I am and the team that I have behind me. Elias, would you share with us how you got onto the show, The Ultimate Fighter? There must be a story behind that. Did you send in a videotape? Uh, how did that all work? Dating myself now, but how did that work out? Um, basically, what ends up happening is um, it's, it's an open cast, and there's requirements and whatnot. And the first aspect is you have to have three minimal fights and a winning record and whatnot, and there's certain criteria. Um, I'm a little bit of a show pony, so I was, I think I was three energy drinks deep after the first, uh, first process where we did a little bit of grappling, a little bit of striking stuff or whatever like that. Just the basics, just to see what you, you knew what you were doing. And then, then it's all personality tests. So a couple of those deep and I just, uh, chatted away, talked about my great hair and <laughs> the rest is history, I guess. You have been listening to my interview with Elias the Spartan Theodoro. Hi, this is Olympic bronze medalist in judo, Marty Malloy, and you're listening to Martial Arts World Radio. I have a few things for you to check out. First of all, in websites, check out bobwallworldblackbelt.com, the world's foremost online martial arts and MMA marketplace. Also, check out Prospect Fighting Championships at www.prospectfights.com. A couple of books for you to consider. Google the books The Tao of MMA, and 21st Century Perspectives on Martial Arts. Both books are available at Amazon, also by searching them by their titles, The Tao of MMA and 21st Century Perspectives on Martial Arts. Today's interviews are brought to you by Kayani Independent Distributor Daniel Jarej. Kayani is a leading provider of all-natural health and wellness products that provide athletes with faster post-training recovery and energy. Endorsed by professional fighters and celebrity martial artists, including MMA fighter Josh Tyler, boxer Manny Pacquiao, and actor Jackie Chan. Reach out to Daniel for more info at Australia at gmail.com or Skype Daniel at that exact same address but on Skype, Australia at gmail.com. Don the Dragon Wilson is an American 11-time professional kickboxing world champion who scored 47 knockouts in four decades. A European martial arts hall of famer and an action film actor who has starred in over 60 films, including several cameo appearances as himself. Don, welcome to Martial Arts World Radio. Hi, Joseph. Thank you for inviting me to speak to your listeners. Now, Don, as I understand it, in the early days of the UFC, you were approached about a fight that never happened. Would you share that experience with us? Yes, actually, uh, in the very beginning, I was approached to um, be an announcer, but uh, I told them that I was still considering fighting, so uh, we spoke about uh, entering the tournament, which, of course, you know, I'm a traditional kickboxer, and I don't like uh, eight fighting eight guys in one night uh, or whatever, getting an eight-man tournament. So uh, I told them I'd fight Hoist Gracie because we're around the same size, and he's known to be a grappler. I'm known to be a striker. So I thought the audience would like that, and, and a verbal agreement was made. But they also requested that I come in and announce the fights to kind of get to know the audience and the audience to know, their specific audience to know me. So after I announced several fights, uh, I asked them when were they, they going to give me the, uh, the fight with Hoist Gracie. And they said, well, because I wanted 20% of the gross. They said, well, we're not prepared to give any percentages to, as of today. So uh, when they went against what we had agreed, uh, I dropped out as an announcer. And when you were in the ring, who was your toughest competitor? 
Oh, you know what? I, I cannot possibly distinguish because um, from 1980 on, after I became a champion, uh, most everybody was tough in some way. Um, even though I may have ended some fights early, um, they were still dangerous fighters, and they had, uh, you know, when you become a champion, they will no longer pay for you to fight unranked fighters. You fight contenders or other champions, people considered the best. So, um, yeah, they were all pretty tough fighters. I, I guess Bronco Sikatik could have been one of my most difficult because um, I went into the fight with a broken hand. I broke it the week before the fight. Then I broke my other hand during the fight. So when you're fighting and you've got two broken hands, it's not an easy day at the office. Over time, did you have to adapt your style and start progressing it uh, throughout your career? Yeah, I think all fighters do that. Um, you, you adapt uh, to um, the sport itself was changing very rapidly as I, as I started. The rules were changing. So the rules, the weight divisions, I mean, you know, the many different associations, that means you've got to constantly adapt just to that. But the training methods, things like that, that it, it was um, evolving. The UFC is going through the, not just the UFC, but I mean mixed martial arts, is going through the same kind of thing. Uh, the only place where they pretty stay consistent, which we did not in kickboxing, was the rules. The rules in uh, these uh, MMA fights are mainly the same. But in kickboxing, you could fight with low kicks, without low kicks, with elbows, without elbows, knees, without knees. So uh, we had another kind of um, aspect of our sport that was difficult. Over time, how did the rules change in kickboxing? Did, the, did it start off that you couldn't do low kicks and then you eventually could do low kicks, elbows? Was Muay Thai incorporated over time? In kickboxing in America, first of all, they didn't even call it kickboxing. They called it full contact karate. So what we did was we took tournament karate, which was fought on a mat, and we kind of simulated that. There were no uh, ring ropes in the first fights. In fact, my first fight was not even on a um, mat. My first fight was on a concrete floor. <laughs> so that's the way tournaments were done. Tournaments were done on floors, and they did... Uh, they thought full contact could be done that way. So it went from the idea of a karate, traditional karate, full contact karate, to more like uh, the kickboxing they have in the Orient. Did you compete all around the world, or was it mostly in North America? Oh, I fought all over the world. I fought uh, six times in Antarctic. Did the audiences differ? Yeah, you know what, the audience, uh, what I found this, though, this is one thing, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to change it and, and sh tell you what the audiences uh, worldwide uh, or how they're similar is they want the winner to win like I would fight I fought the German champion in Berlin the uh, Italian champion in Rome the British champion in um, uh, London I mean I fought everybody's backyard now the beginning of the fights they wanted their local guy to win of course but by the end of the fights they were all cheering when I won because I dominated the fights and um, they their whole um, shift in um, uh, support went to whoever was the winner. And um, so I found audiences have been very fair um, worldwide. Uh, judges, uh, newscasters, not so much. Sounds kind of like the old gladiator days where you earn the audience's respect and then you earn the win and their approval of the win. You are the first person to put it in those terms, and, and I realize now that that's exactly how it is. You know, possibly one of the emperors or something in Rome might have wanted the fighter to be Maybe he didn't like the fighter for whatever reason, but if the audience is cheering and they say thumbs up, then he gets the win. Um, but, you know, regardless of what the audience said, I was picked up and carried out of an auditorium once, and they were chanting Wilson, Wilson the whole time, and th the fight was declared to draw. But the audience was trying to tell me in their own way, which was pretty obvious that they felt I won. Uh, it was in Montreal, and it was against Johnny Terrio, who was um, Canadian and the local favorite. And, um, yeah, but, but during the 12-round fight, they felt I won, and they, they were kind of trying to make up for the judging, Canadian judges saying it was a draw and not a win for me. So um, uh, that, that's one of the things. Now, as far as decisions, uh, the four decisions that I've lost, and I have lost four decisions, I, I did not feel I lost them. I feel the three guys around the ring um, just said the other guy won more points than I did. So um, I didn't feel like they were losses. But the one loss I do have on my records, undeniable, was a TKO against a guy named Glenn McMorris. And um, it is a strange thing, but my life is full of strange, bizarre coincidences. But the fighter with the worst record that I ever faced 
which was nine and six at the time, knocked me out in the first round. That was Glenn McMorris. I was the number one contender. He was a ranked fighter, so he had some skills. But um, uh, it was uh, I made a mistake, and he capitalized on it. And I give him all the credit, uh, but I never made that mistake again. And, and I teach in all my seminars, every seminar I teach, I teach exactly the mistake I make so that nobody who takes my seminar will make the same mistake. And, uh, but that, that is one, my one loss that I consider a loss in 28 years of fighting. So I think I, I did pretty, pretty good for a kickboxer. Going back to that UFC fight that never took place with Hoyce Gracie, if that fight had taken place, what would your strategy have been against such an aggressive grappler? Uh, I'd certainly it'd be a, to win on the striking end. Now, people don't realize I started off as a collegiate wrestler. I mean, I, and they don't know, uh, Bill Wallace was the same way. Bill Wallace was a wrestler. Uh, in fact, his trainer was Dan Gable, the best wrestler in the nation, uh, Olympic wrestler. And um, uh, Bill went to judo, and then he went to karate, and then full contact. But m most martial artists, Joe Lewis was a, Grappler. Grappling is part of self-defense. And so I started off in wrestling, grappling. They just didn't have a sport at that time in martial arts that you could compete with to, to add that. Now they, they add it. So in, in a way, I've been a mixed martial artist my whole career. I, I, I can punch, I can kick, I can elbow, knee, um, and I can fight on the ground. And I did work out with jiu-jitsu people, of course, knowing that Ho that's what Hoist would do. But, of course, my strategy would not be to dominate on the ground. My strategy is to dominate on my feet. I mean, it's not even a question. No disrespect to him, because he's not a striker. But if Hoist Gracie wants to fight me in a 12-round kickboxing match, I will fight him for free. I will donate my fight purse to the charity of his choice. I make that open offer. I did that with Matt Hughes, by the way, and he, you know, no promoter. Uh, either put it together, but I, at one time Dana White called me and asked me to fight Matt Hughes, which I agreed to do. Um, but um, that that would have been an interesting fight, I thought, because at the time they were saying he was the best pound-for-pound pound, uh, MMA fighter in the world at 170, and I fought at 175, and I I fought at one, between 165 to 175, so I could have eat, easily fought him at 170. But um, yeah, Dana White was the reason why that fight didn't happen. What do you think of the UFC today? Do you follow it? I, I'm not a fan of, look, I'm not a fan of any fighting, none. I don't watch boxing, I don't watch kickboxing, I don't watch uh, MMA. If my friend is competing, I'll support my friends, I'll go to fights. Uh, you know, they pay me to go to fights, and, and I'm not saying um, I don't like, I don't enjoy watching, I do, but I am a, what I learned about myself is I'm a selfish athlete. I study fights when it's going to benefit my fighting style. When I'm not doing it, I don't really have much interest in just sitting <laughs> in the stands watching. Um, when I played football, I watched every football game. I was the MVP of my high school football and basketball teams. And I watched basketball, football, nonstop when I played. But once I hung up the helmet and I quit dribbling the basketball, I haven't watched a game in years. I don't watch the Super Bowl. I don't watch NBA playoffs. I, I watch no sports, none. Don, how did your career progress from being a professional athlete to an actor? I made up the decision um, in 1985. I did one movie in, uh, it was a Chinese movie in 82 in New York City called ABC in Chinatown, but it was not to become an actor. It was uh, on the basis of Chuck Norris's recommendation that I moved to L.A. Uh, when I, this was my um, actual first retirement. I retired in 85. I moved to L.A. and I made the attempt to make a transition from fighter to actor. But within, you know, I think less than a year, I was out of money <laughs> and people were offering me fights. So I said, you know what, I can do both. I can train, fight, and uh, try to be an actor. And that's what I did. But it, by 1990, within five years, I was making so much money as an actor. And anybody who knows kickboxing knows you don't make much money there. Uh, that it became a hobby. When, you, when it costs you money to do something, it's no longer a career. It is called a hobby. And it was an expensive hobby because I was making 10 times as an actor what I was making as a fighter. So I retired again, and that was 1990. So that's the second retirement. And um, I didn't come out of retirement until 98 when I got a fight offer by Viewer's Choice to fight Dick Kimber. And that money was, so they gave me 150000 just to sign the contract and then 12% of the pay-per-view. So that was a, a great deal. And uh, I did fight three fights, but then realized that, um, you know, I, it was very, very difficult to get the boxing license because boxing still controls kickboxing and MMA, the athletic commissions. And it was very difficult at 48 to get one. Um, I would fight 
tonight if there was a proper money order, a decent money, uh, a money offer. Um, but at 62, the, the idea of an athletic commission giving me a license is pretty far-fetched, I think. It was hard for me to get the license when I came out of retirement in my late 40s. I could imagine in my 60s what the athletic commission would say. When you were preparing for a film, would you actually, when you had, like when you had a film that was impending, would you actually train as though you were preparing for a fight so that you looked good for the film, or was that required? When I, well, once I signed to do a film, I look at the character and I see what, what, would, what should the character look like. And um, so I try to match my bill to what I'm supposed to look like. But it's always better to drop some weight before a, a, a film. So I will always diet down. But sometimes I've gone into weight training programs when, when it calls for a character that uh, possibly would have more f physical uh, size. But um, I always diet for the films. I, I always drop, you know, 10 to 15 pounds. And, you know, it's, I think it's a standard thing, good thing for most actors. Nine, probably 90% could, you, you know, you don't have to walk around in fighting shape and you don't have to walk around in filming shape. But you should, before you get on camera, it's always good to drop weight. And, and I, I pretty consistently do that. You said you moved to LA. Where did you move from? I'm from Florida. I uh, grew up in Florida. We moved there when I was four years old from Alton, Illinois, where I was born. And so I spent my whole life in Florida until I moved to L.A. in 85. Um, I, I'm from the South. And I'm Asian-looking. And um, when I first moved out here, my best friend was Chris Penn, Sean Penn's younger brother. And Sean said to me, and he knows the business, he said, Don, you're going to have a hard time in this business. And I said, why? And Sean said, because they don't write roles for six-foot-tall Asians with southern accents. <laughs> but you know what? They, they didn't write roles for Arnold Schwarzenegger. He became the highest-paid actor in the world, if you remember. They didn't write roles for bodybuilding champions with Austrian accents. But, um, yeah, I, you know, one thing about the film business um, is that uh, the rule that everybody will agree to is nobody knows anything. And if, if you understand that about the business, because uh, nobody knows what – how careers can manifest themselves and, and what the audience is ultimately going to fall in love with. So, Don, when you were doing that transition and you were going around Los Angeles and Hollywood promoting yourself and attempting to land a career as an actor, were you going through the traditional steps that an actor trying to break into Hollywood would go through, or were you promoting yourself as a world champion kickboxer who should be considered for starring roles in his own action films? I did not try to uh, start off um, uh, thinking I was going to be a box office star of the first film out. Um, what I did was I started taking acting lessons. Uh, I was um, uh, auditioning for agents. I had, you've got to get an agent or you're not going to go out for anything. And I got an agent. Actually, I got Shogasugi's agent. We had the same agent. And uh, later, Cynthia Rothrock went with him. I mean, he's like known to be the agent for independent martial art action guys. But anyway, his name's Ray Cavalieri, and uh, it's the only agent I've ever had. I've still got him to this day. So from 85 till now, the same agent. Uh, that's an aberration in the film business. Usually, you keep changing your agents depending on what kind of jobs they, they say they can get you. But I, I don't do that. I, I stick with my agent, and I've been with him since 85. But I just did the normal Hollywood thing. You, you audition, and you... Uh, I did... My first job was a ba bad guy on General Hospital. And I did that for like three months. I was uh, a part of the, one of their story arcs, and uh, I was what they called a U5, which means under five lines a day. They were all, I was only allowed to say five lines. Um, if I said one over, I'd be against the union, and they'd have to pay me more money, it'd be a big, big problem for me. But, um, yeah, I started off just taking jobs, and um, it wasn't until Blood Fist that I had a starring role. And um, that was 88, so I only been out to Hollywood for about two and a half years. And that's not really considering paying your dues. Two and a half years is pretty short from going to nobody to starring in movies. That was released by MGM. It was a big, tremendous success and started my whole career. So, uh, yeah, two and a half years is not a long time when you think guys like Jack Nicholson, who are obviously today, obviously we know he's talented, correct? Well, he spent the first 14 years as an actor working for minimum wage. In other words, no producer, no director, ever thought he had as much talent as the next guy and was willing to pay him one more dollar more than the minimum wage for an actor. Um, so, you know, talent is not always obvious. You know, and I, I don't know if I had much talent. Now, looking back, I think um, I had great, well, not great. Yeah, I, great acting teachers. 
you know, I, just like I, I believe Chuck Merriman and my brother, and I had great teachers in martial arts. And um, I was just lucky, you know, I studied what they called the Stanford Meisner technique and um, of acting. And then I did this Charles Conrad studio for quite a while, which was really good. And then I had Ivana Chubik as a private. Uh, look, Ivana Chubik has worked with the top actors. I, I believe she worked with Leonardo DiCaprio, but I mean, not positive about that one, but I mean, Charlize Theron, I mean, she was her acting coach. So this is a, an acting teacher, kind of like a master acting coach, like a master martial artist. There's a lot of similarities with acting and, and martial arts, but um, that's one of them. You, the teacher can, should get m a lot of the credit, not most of the credit, but, but a lot of the credit for your performance. Was Blood Fist written specifically for you? As a matter of fact, Joseph, Blood Fist wasn't even written for an agent. When they called me in, um, they had already cast the brother, and he's Caucasian, and when they saw me, they didn't know. Here, here's how the audition started. Casting director was told by Roger Corman, when Blood Sport came out, to get a world champion. So they opened up a magazine and said, Don Wilson, Beverly Hills, California. That's where I lived at the time. And um, world champion, light heavyweight champion. And so they looked at the phone book, and I was listed. Because back in those days, I, you list yourself. And um, the casting director called me on my home phone and said, if you're the Don Wilson that's the kickboxer, we'd like for you to come in and read for the, a role. And uh, I was the Don Wilson that was a kickboxer. And I went in, and as soon as he saw me, he said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Wilson. This is for a Caucasian lead. The brother's already been cast. But maybe you can be the bad guy. So I said, okay, I'll be the bad guy. I didn't, you know, I'm trying to get any part. And I went in and I read one time for the casting director and he stopped and he looked at me and he said, I'll be right back. He leaves the room. He says, um, he comes back in. He says, Roger Corman wants to meet you. Now, I didn't know Roger Corman at the time, which was a great thing. Had I known who he was, that he started Jack Nicholson, Robert De Niro, Francis Ford Coppola, Jonathan Demme, uh, Martin Scorsese, Ron Howard. If I'd known he was the man who was known to be the best eye for talent and could create careers, I would have been nervous. More nervous than I even was. But I, I wasn't too nervous because I already was told I was going to get the job, that, you know, maybe read you get something else. And uh, so he said, Roger Corman wants to meet me. So I leave his office, and um, I go into Roger Corman's office, and Roger does not have me read right off the bat. He just says, Don, tell me about yourself. And I told him I was a kickboxer, that my friend Chuck Norris advised me to try to be an actor, and this, you know, I'm, I'm moved out to Hollywood, and this is what I want to do for a living. So he says, read for me, please. So I start the, the reading start the audition, I get about, oh, I don't know, four or five lines into the scene, he stops me. Now today, <laughs> having 30 years experience as an actor, that's usually a kiss of death. That means they don't even want to waste enough time to get the rest of the scene out. They want you out that door so they can see the real guy. But what he did was, he looked at me and said, Don, you're going to star in this movie. He said, you're going to do martial art movies. He said, you're going to do action movies. He said, much, much later in your life, you'll be a dram famous dramatic actor. He handed me the script. He said, you leave in two weeks. He made his mind up right then. Now, a lot of my friends say, say well, how did you do such a great audition? That Roger Corman would just cast you. And I said, it, now looking back, it is the only audition that I have ever done well, really. I've never done, uh, that's the one. And it's because it was at the point where the character learns that his trainer murdered his brother. The one he's looking for is actually the trainer. And I'm very close to my brother. My brother was my martial art instructor. He was my manager. And um, we work very close. He's produced uh, two films for me in the last year. My brother and I are close. He's a year and a half older than me. And I just did the first acting lesson, which is substitution. You substitute if somebody had, if this guy you're in the scene with had killed your brother, how would you react? And I was able to, I told people today, I was able to fool Roger Corman. He thought I was a great actor. But I was able to be, be real in that scene because I did that substitution. And um, I, I'm not saying Roger later was disappointed with me, but uh, I, I'm very certain no one else uh, that he had been reading the real kickboxing champions, I guess, because he was, uh, I did recognize some people from the Jet Center, some other people in the uh, waiting room uh, to audition. But uh, the other kickboxers, obviously, did, were not given the performance that he wanted. And, um, yeah, I, I did 12 movies with Roger Corman, starting 12 of his films, and that, I uh, started in 30 films now, and that was, that was the launch of my career. Don, you are no doubt an inspiration to many martial artists. Who were your inspirations? Uh, I'm like everybody else. I mean, Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee is one of my first and strongest, but uh, Chuck Norris, 
because I actually knew Chuck, and uh, uh, I did talk to a lot of people. I mean, I, I wasn't in his generation. He was in the, I believe he retired in 72. Uh, but um, he was in the 60s, but he was known to be the best. And um, uh, I got a lot of respect for Chuck, and I try to emulate a lot of his uh, lead as far as the entertainment, the transition from athlete to entertainer. And, um, you know, if I could say I have one major person that I, uh, is my personal hero, uh, it would be Chuck Norris. But then again, you know, Bruce Lee's philosophy of fighting and everything, of course, I, I also have uh, him. But he, his is more like a fan thing, but Chuck and I have uh, been personal friends for years, and, um, you know, he's been great for me. He used to go to my fights and support them. He announced them. Um, he put me in Walker, Texas Ranger, just before it was ending, just just so uh, I, I I could be a part of it, which I really appreciated that. I, when he called me, he said, Don, we're wrapping up Walker. I want you to be on it. On it. And I said, oh, send me the script. And he laughed. He said, Don, you don't need the script. He said, you're playing Don the Dragon Wilson. <laughs> so I don't have to get into character. All I have to do is remember what he wants me to say. And it, it, was, it was fun. Me, Bill Wallace, if you remember, the episode was called Legends. Um, Joe Lewis. Uh, we all got together and did one of the last episodes of Walker. When you were a professional kickboxer, did you have ever, ever have people on the street who tried to test your mettle? Just conservatively tell people, I'm probably 150 and 0 on the street, because I worked in a bar for over five years. If I got into one fight a week, that'd be 50 fights. We get into three fights in a night on a Friday night. Now, when I say fight, I don't mean a 12-round war. I mean, you slap a guy a couple of times, you hit him once, maybe, in the stomach, and, and the fight's over. They, 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 they're, they're done. You're, it's usually, because being a bouncer in a club, you're not there to beat people up, actually. You just have to be able to keep yourself from getting beaten up, and sometimes you will have to dish out a little to stop the guy. But you're there to keep the peace, because you can't have chairs getting broken, or windows, or what, you know, you can't have customers being seeing a fight and running out of the club. So anyway, I was a peacekeeper, basically. So those kind of fights, uh, I had many of them, many of them. And um, I, I, I really, there, there's so many misnomers, some, the misconceptions of martial arts. I've heard this many times. They used to say it in the UFC. Well, all fights, 80% of fights end up on the ground. Well, you know what? They do not. I never was, not, not a single fight, a guy grabbed me, took me to the ground. Now, I was already a wrestler then, so I could tie these guys, normal guys, into a knot. But... I'm just saying, people don't know how to ground. They're not trained. It's not like they're a bunch of jiu-jitsu black belts fighting in bars. And we're talking in the 70s. That's when I worked in a bar. Um, it's just a drunk guy, overweight. And he might have played football. He might have done a little sports. He might have played basketball or something. So he, he's, maybe he's in shape and he's got aggression. He's had one too many drinks. And he wants to throw a big, sloppy, wide punch. Well, it's easy to stop guys like that if you're any kind of level of martial artist. And uh, the hard part is I have gone in front of judges before. And this was fighting three guys. But I was the one that was in legal trouble. <laughs> because when you're a black belt, and I was a kickboxer, um, and the other guys are, oh, two of them are college students, one of them works part-time at a house of pancakes, um, they look like the ones that are defending themselves. doesn't look like. It's hard for you to make it look like uh, this is a case of self-defense, Your Honor. Well, anyway, I, I never got in trouble with the law. I mean, I, if you want to, I was in front of judges, so that, that's a certain amount of trouble. But I, I, I was not convicted or whatever. He did release me. I had witnesses that I was hit first. And, and so I had enough on my side, enough right on my side. But uh, as a martial artist, we should, none of us should ever take pride in beating the untrained fighter. I mean, imagine me as a kickboxer. If you just point at a guy in a mall and you say, Don, I want you to fight him 12 rounds in a kickboxing match. And I get him in the ring, and I knock him out, and wow, what, right now, now, if you've got a guy who's been training for 15, 20 years, he's undefeated, you, like Brock Osikadik was like 32-0, and 0, with 29 knockouts or something, when you beat that guy, you brag all over the place, you should brag and brag and brag about that win, which I do, but, um, yeah, self-defense on the street, I, people, when they say, well, he's, that, that kickboxing looks good in the ring, but what about the streets, it's like this, this is how I can play a parrot, all right, a street fighter is like a street tennis player. If once in a while a guy with a little potential, he's an athlete, he's in shape, picks up a tennis racket, hits it once in a while, how can he go up against a guy like Bjorn Borg, Jimmy Connors? I mean, you take the tennis greats. When you beat them, that's something you brag about. You don't brag about just knocking out some untrained fighter on the street. And so that's why professional athletes, I don't think, you know, guys like Mike Tyson or anybody, you know, who, who actually, uh, someone like Hoist Gracie, if he beats a guy who's untrained, not even a, Black belt in anything. Is Hoist going to brag about that? 
street fighting, fighting on the street, while um, the X factor, which is knives, guns, weapons, multiple opponents, that can make it a, a interesting competition and makes it more dangerous for you. But uh, a one-on-one -on -one with an untrained guy, it's, it's, it's not even fair. Don, in or out of the ring, what has been the single biggest challenge you've ever had to face in your life? Um, being a good father is, you know, and, and a lot of, any family guy knows what I'm talking about. Being, being a good father, making the right decisions with your family, uh, that's the hardest thing to do. That makes kickboxing look like just chicken feed. It's just like very easy. I mean, it's, you know, life is not always as cut and dry as the ring. You know, I know who my opponent is in the ring. And we have a set of rules, and you need to go by the rules. So the X factor is taken out of it. But when you're in everyday-to-day -day life, making the right decision with your children uh, or with relationships and things and career choices, those are, those are much more difficult. And you know what? You don't have to be a kickboxing champion to face that kind of stuff every day. You just got to be a parent. And so uh, I have a lot of respect for um, uh, anybody who has a family and uh, their kids are doing well because I know the parents did well. It's not, not a coincidence that um, the kids are doing well. You know, as a parent yourself, you know there's a lot of uh, guidance. And, and the main thing, uh, you know, as kids, every second they're on this earth, they're cutting the ties to us as the parents. And our job is not to make them dependent on us. Our job is to teach them to be able to live without us. Right? They, we want them to be successful. It's kind of like in the old days, in the evolutionary days, a million years ago, we have to teach them enough about the environment to be able to go out and hunt themselves, right? Because we, we're not going to be there always hunting and bringing home the bacon for the family. So um, that's the hardest thing. That seems to be the um, most difficult thing in life is to uh, uh, raise your kids in the right way so that they're prepared um, for modern society to be successful. Don, our last wrap-up question, what is your philosophy and advice on dealing with loss? Uh, if you're, well, you know, the, I tell people, that losing money, losing your house, losing your job, losing, to me, that, that's just the messiness of life. That, that's, I, I, I try to have sympathy, but like if, somebody, you know, during the stock market crash of the Great Depression, he was a billionaire, and then he... he Loses his money, jumps out of the building, kills himself. Well, you know what? Uh, he just, he's not even in debt. He just loses the money that he's got, and he can't even live another day. I, I just don't have sympathy for people like that because I go to third world countries where they're looking for water every day. That, that's a concern. They are looking for clean water. And um, in our country, I sit with people that throw a fit if their steak is not cooked right. That's the big problem he's had all day long. So you've got to take things in perspective. Uh, the health and well-being and happiness of your friends and family are your strongest concern. Everything else you have to take in stride. You know, you're going to have ups and downs in your career. You're going to have ups and downs financially. It's a roller coaster ride. And if the life was not a roller coaster ride, it would be very boring. You know? And um, I think uh, the, the, what is it, the yin and yang, the having lived without money, you enjoy having money. Now, if you were just born like Donald Trump and you, you have it and you've always had it and it's just a matter of how much are you going to have, well, I don't, I don't think you've, he has not lived. I don't think he, he doesn't seem to be able to relate to the people that are, you know, most of this planet is just looking for clean water. I mean, a lot, we, it's the truth. I, I think that number is something like in the 40,000 children under the age of five die every day of preventable disease and illness, preventable causes. And uh, that's a tr tragic thing when you think about it. But, um, uh, you know, I'm not holding anything against guys like Donald Trump, the 1%, but I just mean you've you got to be able to relate to the real problems and, and not stress out over uh, first world problems. You know, third world problems are finding clean water to drink every day. And uh, I remember once I was watching something, one of the stars, I don't know, it was Matt Damon or somebody, was asking this girl, she's got to walk like three or four miles every day just to get water. And then she walks back and it's to provide water for her family. So it's, she's carrying back some heavy water and she's just a little girl. And so um, I, I don't sweat the small stuff of life, you know. It's just, um, you know, I try to, if my family is healthy first and then happy second, it's a good day for me, and it's just, it's just a matter of how much uh, 
you know, I'm not saying I don't have ambitions, but how much further up you can go because you're already starting way above other people. You know, if you get the friends and family are healthy, uh, the rest is relative. Great wisdom from Don the Dragon Wilson. Don, congratulations on your fight career. Congratulations on your acting career. And we just appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, everybody listening, when you say you congratulations, they, I, it, my success is responsible for the audiences that have supported me. And there used to be a sports audience of kickboxing fans, and now it's movie fans, action movie fans. So I appreciate that and would like to say thank you to all your listeners who have ever watched my movies. And by the way, you know, people put them up on YouTube. Now, I'll, hopefully no producer is going to get mad at me, but there's a lot of you just watch them free. I already got paid. I got paid 25 years ago. But um, I, I had a movie come out in Spanish, which was kind of unusual. It was um, a um, prison movie I did called to fight, and it's been viewed over a million times in, the, in two years. So people are watching movies online more and more, and um, uh, I'd like to thank all my fans, and uh, they, as long as they keep watching them, I'll keep making them. Thanks again, and all the best to you, Don. Thank you. This has been an interview with kickboxing superstar Don the Dragon Wilson. Martial Arts World Radio connects with audiences through distinctive and compelling guests and content across radio, online, and mobile platforms. If you would like to add your station to our network or if you would like to advertise on the show and sponsor our Celebrity Fighter interviews, reach out to me at producer at mawradio.com. And be sure to check out our website at www.mawradio.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube by following Martial Arts World Radio. I'm Joseph Clark. Thank you for listening, and I wish you safe travels. Martial Arts World Radio is the official radio show and podcast of The Factory, Martial Arts Boxing and Fitness at 450 Matheson Boulevard East, Unit 44, Mississauga, Ontario. Check us out at www.factorygrindgym.com.